0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you, Dave. Um, I don't know about you guys, but when we were repeating, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That, that just fires me up. Did, y'all, did that get y'all? We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. For our testimony, man, that's pretty awesome when you put scripture to really good music and have a really good band leading you in worship. So, thanks, Granger. Well, good morning, you guys doing all right? Good and you got the, uh, the full act by Tracy this morning, I tell you, that uh, you got he got us, uh, he got you ready. But well, it, it's really good to be back, uh, with you. Um, I'm talk, talking about how we apply uh, the gospel to our work lives and. I'm excited to talk with you this morning, not because uh, I'm good at that. Actually, just the opposite. Um, I have made a complete mess of my life uh, in this area. Um, But thankfully, Jesus is in the business of redeeming messes. Amen? Uh, And and using us. And so I am a redeemed mess. Um, I have sought uh, fulfillment and work. Uh, I went seminary, law school, big law firm, small law firm, teaching law school, back to small law firm, on a church staff, back to teaching law. And the verdict is in. The issue is not the context. The issue is me. Uh, I finally figured it out uh, that I need help. Uh, And so I I don't come to you as an expert. I come to you as a fellow brother in Christ um, who has seen some things that the Lord has revealed to me in his word that I desperately need to apply, that we desperately need to apply. So I ask you to pray with me as we start, that the Lord would do something great among us this morning with his word. Father, you are great and glorious. I am a complete mess that has been redeemed by the matchless person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, your word is powerful to break strongholds. Your word through the gospel brings life and joy and freedom and grace and mercy. Lord, you promise that your word never returns to you void. It never returns without accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, you have brought us to hear your word this morning. It's no accident. We're sitting in these seats. So no accident we're in this room, so Lord, we pray that you would be faithful to your promise to move, to work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our minds to understand, open our hearts to believe and apply what we see and hear here this morning about the gospel, its glory, its beauty, and its countless implications. Lord, we're ne- desperate for you. We need you. We pray all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, for your glory, for our good. Amen. Well, if you... Uh-oh. We don't have any slides? Well, you know. Here we go. Computer problems. There we go. Work, right? It's frustrating. Uh, well, if, if you were to have the slides behind me, you would notice, as you have the last couple of weeks, that this series has been entitled, Gospel Living, the Obedience of Faith. And if you remember, as we're going through Romans, this was an important phrase. Uh, It began the book and it ended the book. Uh, The obedience of faith shows up two significant times in the book of Romans. One at chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says that he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And then at the end of the book, Romans 16, Paul gets wrapped up in the worship of God and says, God is just revealed the mystery of the gospel through the prophetic writings, and now it's been distributed and proclaimed among the nations. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. At the beginning and at the end of the book of Romans, it's clearly important to Paul's thought, to Paul's argument in the book of Romans, but what in the world does it mean, the obedience of faith? Um, If you are familiar with the commentaries, you'll know like every other phrase in the Bible, there's like a hundred different alternative interpretations. But I think a good one for us this morning is this. The obedience of faith is joyful obedience that flows from the gospel being applied to the heart. I know that's a mouthful. I'll say it again. The obedience of faith is joyful obedience that flows from the Say it a different way, from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. So it's clearly important. And when we talk about the heart, okay, when we talk about applying the gospel to the heart, what, what in the world does that mean? Okay, I don't mean the organ, okay. I don't even mean necessarily emotions. Although the gospel does produce great warmth and stirs our emotions, what I primarily mean is the core of who we are as men and women. Keller puts it this way According to the Bible, the heart is not primarily emotions, but rather the seat of our fundamental commitments and trust. And therefore, it is the control center of the whole life. I like that. The heart is the control center of the whole life. So when we talk about the gospel being applied to our heart, we're talking about our hearts being transformed in their fundamental commitments and trust. Okay, well, that's pretty easy, right? I mean, we understand the gospel, apply it to our hearts. Out comes joyful obedience. So pretty easy. One plus two equals three. We can go home. Well, we've all either walked with the Lord long enough or seen people doing so to know it's not quite that clean or quite that easy. And part of the problem is we all have various roles and various contexts where we have to live. right? So we have all different contexts that each provide unique challenges to the application of gospel truth to our heart and thereby the production of joyful obedience in our lives. And that's what we've been trying to do in this series, Gospel Living. Each of the guys have gotten up here have tried to set forth a different context or different thing that you deal with in your life and tried to encourage us to think rightly about how to apply the gospel to our hearts in that context and thereby produce joyful obedience in that context. And we've gone through several of these contexts, from money to parenting to forgiveness. And this morning, we're going to take on our last context and it's work. Uh, if Oh, we do have it now. Can you put up the pie chart, Frank? I know you can all read this, right? I'm going to see all the reading glasses come out. Actually, I, I know you can't. But it actually works better that you can't. So what do you think this this pie represents from age 25 to 54, what the average American, how the average American allocates their time in a day? And I know some of you are below 25, but I know all of you guys wish that you were 25 or older, so just assume that. And some are older than 54, but you'll gladly go down to below that threshold. So let's assume we're all there and assume this is relatively correct. Which do you think is the green piece of the pie? What do you think that represents? Work, really, that's good, that's good. So you'll see if you could read the numbers, you would see that 8.9 The average American spends 8.9 out of our 16.3, those are precise figures, of our waking hours at work. 55% roughly of our waking hours as Americans are spent at work, except if you're a stay-at-home parent and then it's 100% of your time, okay? (laughs) Some of this stuff is going to just sound like it's just applying to work. I realize changing diapers and bottles is the hardest work. So I, I'm not going to always make the connection, but please know my, I'm with you. I've seen that. I'm glad I don't do that. I could not do that. Okay? So either 55, somewhere between 55 and 100% of our time as Americans is spent at work. So since we're called to live lives of marked by the obedience of faith, and 55% of our waking hours are spent at work, I think the conclusion can be drawn if we don't, live lives characterized by the obedience of faith at work, we're not doing so at all. Let me say that again. If we're not living lives marked by the obedience of faith at work, we're not doing it at all. 55% is a pretty significant fraction. Okay, well, so it's clearly important. Clearly we have to do it. But how do we do it? I mean, how do we live lives of joyful obedience flowing from the gospel being applied to our hearts at work? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what this morning is all about. And we're going to approach the question by breaking it into two parts. One, how do we apply the gospel to our hearts in the unique context of work? How do we do this at work? And then two, what does joyful obedience even look like at work? If you were to have a camera on my office most days as I field emails and calls and draft documents, joyful may not be the first descriptor that you use to describe what I look like and how I'm acting. So, so what does, I mean, we talk about joyful, but what does that even mean? What does joyful obedience even mean in the work, in the context of work? Okay, so first, how do we apply the gospel in the context of work? And before we talk about applying the gospel, I want to take just a little bit of time and put the gospel clearly before us, So we have these truths clearly before us, and then we'll think about applying it. And I can think of no better place to go than Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. If you have your Bibles with you, and maybe it'll be up there as well. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned each one to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. This great passage, in this great passage Isaiah makes clear that all of our griefs, all of our sorrows, all of our transgressions, all of our iniquities, all of our wanderings, all of our rebellion, all the judgment we deserve, and all the punishment that is rightly ours, all of these things have been taken from us and placed on Christ on the cross. Jesus bore our burdens. Jesus carried our sorrows. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. And he did all this as he was falsely tried, falsely accused, falsely condemned, brutally beaten and mercilessly killed and crucified on a Roman cross for us. Jesus's death on the cross brought us peace. Jesus's wounds heal our wounds. He died the death that we deserved and credited to us the righteousness we could never earn, never obtain. This is the gospel. And these truths are pretty familiar to us in this room, right? It's just kind of language we speak here, right? You've heard many, many great sermons from this pulpit about the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe them here. We feel them here. We get misty-eyed at times here. But the question is, how do we take the gospel from this room and bring it with us to that other room called our office? How do we take these gospel truths with us on our commute to work tomorrow morning? One of my favorite seminary professors, and this is a seminary professor so I can say this, he would say the secret of having a good home life is so when you're driving home, drop off your demons one by one. Just leave them on the corner. And then the next morning when you're driving to work, pick them all up. <laughs> so how do we take the gospel with us as we're picking up our demons on the way to work to face the challenges that inevitably we will face there? Well, as I said, uh, I've made a complete wreck of this. I've, I've tried many different things, a lot of them have failed, but three aspects of the gospel um, as of late have been bearing fruit and have been helpful to me uh, as I face the struggles of work, um, and I want to share those with you. I was introduced to them um, by a uh, guy named Jonathan Edwards uh, in a sermon uh, that he delivered when he was the ripe old age of 18. Um, At 18-year-old uh, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, and the thesis of the sermon was essentially this. He said, regardless of whatever our external circumstances are, because of what we have in Christ, we can be have a solid and steadfast joy because our bad things actually turn out for good, our good things, our truly good things, can never be taken away from us, and our best things... Are yet to come. Almost sounds too good to be true, right? I mean, but this is what the gospel does. It makes, it means, because of Christ, our bad things turn out for good, our good things can never be taken from us, and our best things are yet to come. Amen. So we're going to take these three aspects of the gospel and try to bury them deep into our hearts so Monday morning, as we're picking up our demons on the way to work, we can fight. With these gospel truths. So the first, our bad things turn out for good. If you've worked more than a minute, or more than an hour, you know lots of bad stuff goes down at work, okay? Lots of bad things happen. The real world is not a safe and happy place. Bad things happen. Here's an illustrative list. Some of us are treated unfairly by our supervisors, some of us have been let down by our employees, some of us face oppressive workloads that lead to unhealthy levels of stress and anxiety. Some of us feel that we're undervalued and overlooked for promotions. Some of us feel bored and trapped in a job that doesn't give us the level of fulfillment that we're longing for, that we were promised, or that we think we deserve. Some of us face unrealistic expectations from within or without. Some of us have experienced the strain of business relationships that have soured over the years for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's something you said. Maybe it's something they said. Maybe they didn't pay you enough. Maybe you thought you paid them too much. Whatever the reason, there are a lot of bad things that go down at work. Um, I've told lots of stories about my bad experiences at work, but one that was particularly uh, fresh this morning as I was thinking about it was uh, my first legal job in Dallas. I was at a big law firm, and I had a guy who took me under his wing. He was an excellent lawyer that had zero margin of room for error. And as a first-year lawyer you are going to make error. That is just, that's why you call it practice. You're practicing. It's a law of practice. He didn't get that memo. And so, uh, one closing we had, uh, it was a a big closing. It was the biggest deal I'd worked on. I'd been up for like 45, 54 hours working on this deal. And if you've ever been part of a remote closing, I'm sorry if if this isn't your world, but I'm just sharing you mine. Um, You know that signature pages for all these consents and all the documents come in from about 100 different places. So, I'm a, been practicing law two months. I have no idea what i 'm doing i 've getting a hundred emails and i 'm getting we have to disperse the funds by four o 'clock and it 's getting you know three hundred and forty five ish so all the heat's coming down on me. Do you have all the signature pages and I'm like, i don 't know how many we're we supposed to have and so um, I at one point felt pretty comfortable about five minutes till the disbursement deadline that we had all of it and so I, I gave the green light I said, yeah we can release the funds, we have all the signatures. About two minutes later, I was uh, looking at the checklist and noticed that one was missing. And so I went to partner, I won't say his name. I went to partner and said, uh, partner, um, don't know how to say this, but we're missing a signature. To which his reply was to change the shade of his skin from a somewhat normal color to a somewhat red color. And some things were said, I won't repeat in this room. Uh, but in essence, he made it clear to me that I was uh, one of the worst lawyers that had ever lived and that the malpractice insurer was probably going to be called. It didn't happen. Everything worked out fine. We didn't get sued, all that stuff. But in other words, that's a bad thing. That's just an illustration of a bad thing that happened to me. And if you know my story at that time, a lot of those bad things were happening, and I wasn't doing this fighting of applying the gospel to my heart. I'd been to seminary. I knew better, but I wasn't engaged in the fight of applying the gospel to my heart. So how do we do that? Well, first, as we encounter bad things, we remind ourselves of the truth that in Christ, our bad things actually turn out for good. We open our Bibles to Romans 8, 28 through 29, and hear the Lord speak this truth over our difficulty. Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that we might be the firstborn among many, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The reality is that for a Christian, our bad things the worst things in our life, along with the best things in our life, are all being worked together by our loving Father for our good. And Paul makes clear our ultimate good is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we can be certain, as we face the yell boss, the most awful circumstance at work, that God is working that bad thing for the very opposite, of the purpose for which the enemy intends it in our life. He is working it for our good to conform us to the image of Christ. And what that does, if you've ever been in an oppressive context, what it does is it weighs in on you. It shrinks your worldview to where all you can see is your pain and your suffering. And what this gospel fighting does is it broadens your view. It allows you to see things correctly in light of the gospel to say, no, this bad thing is not the end for me. God is working this bad thing for my good. But not only that, our bad things turn out for good and our truly good things can never be taken from us. In other words, we cannot lose what is truly good in our lives. We experience a lot of loss at work. Again, if you've experienced any time at work, this is a place where a lot of loss happens. Here's an illustrative list. Some of us have lost our jobs unexpectedly without warning. I was speaking with someone right after the first service who said, that's crazy, I just lost My job, without warning, this week. Some of us have lost our reputations because of business failures or losses when things didn't go according to plan. In one minute, in the eyes of everyone, you're a genius. And in the next minute, in the blink of an eye, you're a complete idiot. Genius to idiot. It's a roller coaster that many of us have ridden. Some of us have faced significant financial losses because of variables outside of our control, and not to get too personal, but the price of natural gas, or the price of oil, or the level of some index, or Brexit, and on and on and on, these things that we have no control over and yet cause us significant loss. Some of us have lost clients and deals because of our own mistakes, personality conflicts, Or aggressive behavior by our competitors. I've lost a couple like that these past couple weeks. This is real and personal. So, how do we apply the gospel to our hearts as we experience loss at work? Well, God's not silent on this issue. I saw a great uh, article the other day that said, Don't say God's silent if your Bible's shut. Don't say God's silent if your Bible's shut because He's talking. We're just not listening. We need to listen to the Lord as we experience loss at work so we can apply the gospel to our hearts, and so we open our Bible to Romans again, Romans eight, thirty eight to thirty nine, where we read, as David read earlier neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. We'll experience great loss in this life. I look out on this room and I see how much loss we've experienced. It's great and it's heavy. But the reality is, as we experience loss at work or otherwise, the truth is that the love of God can never, ever be taken from us. Nothing within us, nothing outside of us, None of our weaknesses, none of our sin, if we have been united with Christ, can separate us from the love of God that is in that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Timothy Keller puts it this way, only if Jesus is your treasure are you truly rich, for he is the only currency that cannot be devalued. Can I get an amen from financial planners out there? Nida, you got that? And only if he is your savior are you truly successful, for the status with him is the only status that can't be lost. And that's sweet. And the status in Christ is the only status that we cannot lose. Amen. So, next time we're experiencing loss at work, and the loss is significant, or if you know loss is in the horizon and you're weighing under the anxiety and the stress that naturally comes with impending loss, which is sometimes worse than actual loss the encouragement is to open your scriptures or pull up a browser at work to Romans Bible Gateway, Romans 8, 38 through 39, and just read, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will I be able to separate me from the love of God that's mine in Jesus Christ. Even if I lose everything at work, that can't be taken from me. But not only that, not only are our bad things working out for good, not only can we not lose the good things that we have in Christ, but our best things are yet to come. Here, Edwards, 18-year-old little Jonathan Edwards, is encouraging us to turn our eyes to the new heavens and new earth, where every promise that God has made in all of the scriptures will be fulfilled where everything lost in the fall in Genesis 3 will be restored. It's described like this in Isaiah 25, 8 through 9. I typically go to Revelation 21, but I was drawn to this passage, and I think it's a beautiful picture. It says this, Isaiah 25, 8 through 9. The prophet describes heaven like this. He will swallow up death forever. and his salvation. In the new heavens and the new earth, death will be swallowed up forever. Death will be swallowed up by victory that Christ has purchased for all of us. Though there are many tears on this side of eternity, there will be no tears on the other side of eternity. All of our reproach, all of our sufferings, all of our waiting, it will be over. We will experience for all of eternity the salvation of God that is ours in Jesus Christ to greater degrees and sweetness and magnitude than we can even fathom in this room. We will join with the choir of heaven and sing, "This is the Lord we have waited for Him." Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation, and be glad we will and rejoice we will for all of eternity, delighting in the depths and the beauties and the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our future hope, this future hope, is its worked into our heart. As this aspect, this future aspect of the gospel is worked in our heart, it makes all the difference in how we live our present circumstances. Timothy Keller explains it like this. Imagine there's two guys, or women, they're both promised the same job. And the job is this. They'll work for one year, seven days a week, 16 hours a day, doing a mundane task in dismal conditions. So for some reason both the guys or girls, take the job. There's one difference. The first guy is told, at the end of the year, if you make it, you will receive minimum wage, whatever the going minimum wage is at the end of the year. And the second guy is told, if you make it the entirety of the year, you will receive $100 million. Which guy, guy A or guy B, do you think is whistling at work? guy b right and how much more so is it true for us as as christians christ is here with us now turning our bad things for good and securing the reality that our good things can never be taken from us but christ has also secured an infinitely glorious future that's more beautiful and glorious than we can ever fathom and if our heart's hope is anchored there our present reality can be navigated no matter how dismal how mundane how challenging that's the gospel being applied to our heart at work. Paul describes it this way in Romans eight eighteen. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our future glory is so glorious. Jonathan Edwards in this part of his sermon said, listen, I'm not even gonna try to describe it. To try to describe it would be to darken its glory. I think he has... Good point there, other than to say everything lost by the fall will be restored. Every promise that has been made will be fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's more glorious and more beautiful than we can ever fathom. So how do we apply the gospel to our hearts in the unique context of work in the 55% of our waking hours each and every workday? Well, we meditate and call to mind and ask the Holy Spirit to make real to our hearts the fact that our bad things are going to be worked for good, our good things can never be taken from us, and our best things are yet to come. And as we apply the gospel to our hearts, the definition of the obedience of faith says, joyful obedience will come from that, will be produced. We will be able to live lives of joyful obedience. But what does joyful obedience look like at work. Well, Paul again gives us a pretty clear picture in Colossians three twenty three to twenty four if you have your Bibles. Colossians three twenty three to twenty four. And actually this is from the NIV, I've been reading from the ESV. But whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. First, notice how broad this instruction is, whatever you do. There's no qualifiers here, right? Paul doesn't say whatever you do at church or whatever you do that falls within your passions and your particular giftedness or whatever you do for people that you really like and respect and haven't harmed you. No, the instruction is incredibly broad, infinitely broad, whatever you do. Okay, well, whatever we do, how are we supposed to do it? Look back at verse 23. Work at it with all your heart. See, it's only as the gospel is applied to our hearts that we can work with all of our hearts. To work with all of our hearts is to work with all that we are, with all the gifts and abilities we've been giving, leaving nothing on the table when we leave our desk to go home to our families at the end of the workday. Keller says this, Christians are to be fully engaged at work as whole persons, giving their minds, hearts, and bodies fully to doing the best job possible on the task at hand. sounds an awfully lot about worship, doesn't it? And all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, we're supposed to worship our work? Well, clearly not, but our work is supposed to be worship. Continue looking at verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. We're not giving our hearts, minds, souls, and strength to our work or to our bosses. We're offering all that we are as we work through our work to the Lord as an act of service and worship to him. We are, as Paul says at the end of verse 24, serving the Lord Christ. Realizing that we're serving our Savior, the one who loves us, with a perfect, unchangeable, unstoppable, unquenchable, faithful, and unconditional love brings about great freedom. Keller describes it like this, and this quote's long, but it's worth it. Christians, you see, have been set free to enjoy working. If we begin to work as if we were serving the Lord, we'll be freed from both overwork and underwork. Neither the prospect of money and acclaim or lack of it will be our controlling consideration. Work will be primarily a way to please God by doing his work in the world for his namesake. We all work for an audience, whether we are aware of it or not. Some perform to please parents, others to impress peers, others to win over superiors, while many do what they do strictly to live up to their own standards. All of these audiences are inadequate. Working for them alone will lead to overwork or underwork, and sometimes a mixture of the two based on who's watching. But Christians look to an audience of one, our loving Heavenly Father, and that gives us both accountability and joy in our work. Pulling this all together, we are to fully engage with every task that comes across our desk or every bottle and every diaper that comes across our floor, With all that we are, serving the Lord, the one who has saved us. Keller Keller amplifies this in his take on Romans 12.11. Romans 12.11 says this, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Keller summarizes a verse like this. We as Christians are asked to bring emotion, discipline, and urgency to the task of being living sacrifices, In the lives we lead and the work we do, we are asked to live with passion. This is what joyful obedience looks like at work, doing every single task with all that we are, all of our minds, all of our hearts, all of our strength, all of our emotion, with all urgency and discipline and passion. Does that describe your Monday morning? Yeah, me either. My Monday morning is going to look a little bit like this. I'm going to scramble to get Bliss dressed and her lunch packed, get her here hopefully before 8 so we won't get in trouble, drive uh, downtown in the Prius, a little apprehensive about what awaits me at my desk, Uh, walk up to the coffee pot and get, if I'm honest, my third or fourth cup of coffee for the day, turn on the light to my office, sit down at my desk, take a deep breath, put in the password to my computer, and... We're off. See, the lofty calling of joyful obedience is lived out in the ordinary, mundane, difficult space of the 55% of our life that we live out at work. We're called to produce lives of joyful obedience in all of our weakness, in all of our limitations, in all of our struggles. In other words, It's not something we can produce in and of ourselves. And that brings us back to where we started. It's only a heart that has been transformed and saturated by the gospel that can produce joyful obedience. We're called to live all of our lives as Christians in such a way that it's marked by the obedience of faith. In other words, we are supposed to live lives of joyful obedience flowing from our hearts that have been transformed by the gospel we do that at work by lots of different ways but what I've argued this morning is by meditating on three aspects of the gospel that the bad things we face at work are actually being worked out for our good to conform us to the image of Christ that the good things that we have in Christ cannot be taken from us no matter how much loss we face at work and that our best things are yet to come so we can labor with the hope of heaven and as we do that we will slowly, imperfectly, with all of our weaknesses, all of our faults, all of our flaws, all of our besetting and dwelling sins, all of the demons that we pick up on the way to work, we will begin to produce lives marked by joyful obedience. So I want to just a word to what I think are probably three groups of people who are responding to what has just been presented. One If this feels like law to you, if my description of joyful obedience at work has caused your chest to get even tighter and it feels like a yoke of about a 10,000-pound weight, like, thanks, ham, I already had a 10,000-pound weight. Thanks for adding another one on it. Now I can never be good enough. The answer is to go back to the gospel. Remember, joyful obedience does not merit right standing with God, but rather we are now freed to produce lives of joyful obedience because of the right standing that Christ has secured for us with God. We're freed to live lives of joyful obedience, but that earns no merit with God. Two hymns that paint this reality beautifully. William Cooper says this, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty and to choice. His friend John Newton said this in a hymn Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. For those of you who feel the weight of our calling to live lives marked by the obedience of faith, remember that we are saved by grace through faith and are freed to produce this joyful obedience. To those of you who hear the description of what a, the joyful obedience looks like at work and you get pumped up and you get fired up and you're like, oh yeah, that's me. Okay, Monday morning, I'm going to be passionate. I'm going to live a life of passion. I'm going to kill it. I've got it. If only I'd known this earlier, this is, this is going to be easy. One plus two equals three. The, the math is not that simple. The answer for you again is to go back to the gospel. We can only produce joyful obedience from hearts that have been transformed by the gospel. We will fail. We're going to fail a lot. We're going to fail often, and we're going to fail hard. But no matter how hard the fall and how significant it is, the grace of God is always greater. I've come to love Proverbs 24:16 which says this, the righteous falls 7 times and rises again. The grace of God, no matter how far the fall, is always there to meet us and strengthen us, dust us off, and get us back on the road. But secondly, if you're excited about this, I want to. You, you heard about maybe 50 Keller quotes in this sermon. Uh, they all came from primarily one book uh, that Keller wrote called Every Good Endeavor Connecting Your Work to God's Work. And it traces uh, the theme of work from creation. To how fall has affected our experience of work, and how Christ redeems our experience of work, and I can't recommend it enough. I was hoping that one would be in our bookstore, but it's not. Where's Norian? No, she's not here, so I can say epic fail, Norian. Uh, epic fail. <laughs> uh, I love you. Yeah, I love you, Norian. Uh, when you listen, um, but anyway, uh, I would encourage you to get a copy of it. I would have brought one, except I assume that Norian had done her job. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> who, that's a deep hole that, that's a deep hole okay um, all right <laughs> finally if you are uh, not a believer uh, this morning uh, but like the rest of us are struggling uh, with how to make sense of work how to navigate the difficulties of work the answer is in the gospel of jesus christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, you're brought from, the scripture says, death to life. You go from being blind to having sight. And also, in the gospel, you have these resources to be able to say to your heart, heart, this bad thing is going to work out for my good. My good things that I have now in Christ can never be taken from me. And my best things are not in this life, but in life to come. If you reach out empty hands of faith this morning, whether we are a believer and feel the weight of the call to live a life of obedience of faith, or whether you're fired up and ready to be passionate tomorrow morning, or whether you aren't a believer and have not yet trusted in Christ, the message of the gospel and the call of the gospel is the call for each one of us. And I'm just going to close our time by reading the gospel as expressed in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 over us, and then we'll close. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Father, I thank you for your grace and your goodness expressed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the glorious and beautiful truths of the gospel that you and your infinite goodness and holiness created man and woman so that they could enjoy and partake of your glory and beauty and love. But yet we with Adam and Eve, all rebelled against you and deserve infinite punishment because of our rebellion against you. But even in the garden in Genesis 3, you promised to provide a way for us as your creatures to be restored to you, our creator. And over the scripture, over the pages of scripture, the name of that promised serpent crusher was disclosed to be Jesus Christ. And that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died a brutal death and rose from the grave and now ascended to your right hand in heaven. And you've made a way for us to be restored merely by believing what you have said about him and what you have said he has done for us, namely bearing the punishment we deserve and crediting to us the righteousness that we can never obtain so that we can be called holy, blameless, and above reproach, that we could be called your sons and your daughters. Lord, thank you that this gospel changes everything about the way we live and every part of our life. Lord, in particular, I pray that you would work this gospel into our hearts in such a way that it would produce the obedience of faith in that 55% of our work days where we're at, work, Lord, would you produce in us your people Life's characterized by joyful obedience because of the way that the gospel has been applied to us. Lord, would you remind us that our bad things work for good, our good things can never be taken from us, and our best things we have to come. Would those gospel truths produce in us a passion and a discipline and a way of serving you and worshiping you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength with every task that we do tomorrow morning? For the rest of the week, and for the rest of our prayers. I pray that you would do this for your glory, for our good, for the good of our employers, for the good of our coworkers, and the good of our clients. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church, located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at org.